0: i like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke's Gospel. If you do not have a Bible with you, we have Bibles there in the pews. We'll be turning to Luke 16, which is page number 896 in the Pew Bible. And then later on, we're going to be looking at another passage of Scripture in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've got two separate passages Uh, Similar to last week. And for this month so far, uh, we've talked about a biblical basis both for missions and a biblical base for giving. Today we add to that list another component. Two weeks ago we studied Acts 1 and 3 John having to do with the Great Commission and how our excitement with the Great Commission, our fervency to carry the gospel to others that do not know it has everything to do with how we value the gospel ourselves. If it's valuable enough to us, we'll make the sacrifice to go tell others. And then last week we talked about giving. uh, A message that ranks, I'm sure, on everyone's top ten list of things they like to hear at church. But we took an an honest approach as we can with with Scripture to see what the Scriptures say. We looked at the Old Testament and the pattern for giving as the tithe. And then how when we turn over to the New Testament, that, that same pattern is conspicuously missing. But in its place, we saw these very vibrant patterns of faithful giving from a cheerful heart. Uh, a, a pattern for giving in uh, its its regularity of setting aside the first day of the week it 's proportionate to how God has prospered us, and then how that is to be properly administrated from those in the church that oversee such things. Well, today we look at the component of stewardship, a biblical basis for stewardship and the reason why this is important is it's closely tied with what we 've looked at in the other two weeks, and our understanding of what stewardship is uh, has a lot to do with uh, being positioned in a in a way that God could use us should He desire to do so, that we're available and ready as stewards of his good gifts to administer. And uh, to manage those correctly and efficiently so that the business for which Christ died, the Great Commission, could be carried out uh, as efficiently as possible. So, the definition, we'll, we'll get that out of the way to start with. Simply put, a steward is one who manages the possessions of another. Stewardship, a steward. Manages someone else's things, their affairs, their goods, their belongings, their possessions. Now in our case, and we've talked about this in weeks past, it's God that owns everything. We looked at Psalm 24. It's a good place to start this morning because that will give us uh, an anchor in, in moving forward with the idea of stewardship. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. It's all His. But He has entrusted us to manage His possessions. That's biblical stewardship. Uh, You you think about it this way. And we covered, again, these same ideas. That God created of His own will, out of nothing and out of no... uh, No purpose of necessity, but because he chose, he created this world out of nothing. And everything that is in this world and on this world, over the course of six days, he rested on the seventh. But then the creation which bore his own image, that is man and woman, the first man and woman, were placed in a garden. that The scripture says he planted. And as as we understand it, it was a, a, a perfect place. We could read about it, right? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. There is your first instance of stewardship. He did not sign over uh, the deed to this planet, to Adam and Eve, but put them there to do what? To work it, to tend it, to oversee it, to have dominion and rule over All the fish, all the birds, all the animals, all the creeping things, that's for him to do. That is a stewardship. You could say, well, it looks like a job. Well, in some aspects, that's exactly what it is. It's it's administering, managing the possessions of God. And you think about it that way, he saw us as responsible enough to give us those responsibilities. So since the beginning, this is the fundamental principle of biblical stewardship. God owns everything. We're simply managers or administrators acting on His behalf. Therefore, stewardship expresses our obedience to God's commands regarding the administration of everything He has placed under our control. Now that being said, this is where we often have a confusion between ownership and stewardship. Now, if you work a job and you are in close contact with your boss who owns the equipment that you work on every day or you drive around their delivery truck or you're accounting for and managing the, the uh, receipts and payables then it's obvious where those things you're managing come from. But when it's God, we say, owns everything, it's somewhat different. And we can get confused between the way we should act, what's the difference, where's the line between ownership and stewardship. And that's what we'll try to focus on as we move forward. All of this having to do with an introduction to these two passages we're going to read here in a moment but you tell me is there anything more counter-cultural than to say everything i have everything i am is all owned by the lord now we're not smart Alex. we don't fill out a credit application and where it says do you own or rent well actually i neither it's all the lord's <laughs> but that's what we believe Now, functionally, where all this pans out and how uh, our money is spent and how we view what we have and how we share it or not, give it or not, that all has to do with what we believe about stewardship. One word that we learn, I think, earlier than just about any other, and you, you can be the judge of this especially if you've had children in your home and you watch them grow up and you know which words they learned first and which ones they used most often. But I think at the Mooneyham home, the word mine (laughs) is probably one of the first and the most used. Comes natural to us, doesn't it? And we don't outgrow it. I could get into real big trouble really quick if I just talk to you about the way I consider certain things at our house mine. Don't touch it. If you do, put it back where you got it from. And I need to not know that you touched it. <laughs> Just leave it. Because it's mine. And the, the amount of uh, learning and, and, and change, submission, all the things that were difficult our first uh, year or two of marriage between Corey and myself, having lived a number of years alone by myself with all my stuff in certain places, have to adjust. We are hardwired for ownership. We have to work at stewardship. There's there's all types of things involving submission and responsibility, accountability, all tied in with the idea of stewardship and our relation to the one who owns it all. So as another message in this month of emphasizing missions, the support of which has to do with our material possessions, our income, this is a a place where I think the Scripture has much to teach and we have much to learn. Back to the idea of, of God as the owner. And our position as, as recipients of His good grace and the things that we have as stewards of those things He owns. I do want to call attention to the fact that this is not as if He does this with greed or stinginess. We'll never be able to outgive God is what someone commented from last week's message. And if you think about the arrangement, not just the Garden of Eden and putting man and woman here. This is for you. You manage this. One of the greatest lessons I ever had in my life, growing up and developing, was the day the doctor placed in my hands this 12-year-old right here on the front row. my, My firstborn. It was later that I heard a man preaching through the concept of these things. He says, God is the first delegator. He created us for this role. To hand to us his things, his possessions, to manage his affairs. And nothing else speaks more highly of that than to say, I have created life, a person with an eternal soul. It started out with two cells that multiplied to four, to eight, to 16, to 32. And then the day I hold this life, and it's as if God says, There, you bring it up. Don't worry about it. I'll give you what you need, and I trust you with it, else you wouldn't have this life. But you are the steward, I'm the owner. Those are huge themes that you can't say uh, playing for keeps is, is not even close enough to describe the responsibility and accountability we have as stewards of the goods and graces that God has given to us. So having defined our terms. And our definitions. Let's focus on what it means to be a steward. And I've already mentioned these two. But let's, let's name them out. If you're making notes, write them down. And we've got a passage of scripture that goes with each. But the concept of stewardship, the management of someone else's possessions, in this case, our Lord's, focuses or involves, rather, at least two implications. A responsibility in that management and an accountability in that management. So do responsibility first. I'm sure that's a word you're familiar with. And um, in life, usually we start hearing about that word about the time that our parents and other adults begin to start expecting more out of us, right? As we grow older, we begin to use that word more with our Children who we expect more out of as they grow up. Taking responsibility is part of growing up. And one of the, the uh, oftentimes pass, fail uh, litmus test of whether or not you've got it or still need some is your first job, right? I was fired from my first job. It lasted three hours. (laughs) Not my job, but my unemployment. Because the manager there fired everybody that day, including the guy who his mom would drop off on Saturdays, which was me. And then when the boss got back, he found out what had happened, and he said, don't worry about all that. You're not fired. You have a job. But for those three hours, I'm thinking, what did I do? Uh, was, it that, was it really that bad? I thought I could clean cars okay. Dad trained me. He's the pickiest car cleaner I know of. So what went wrong? What, where, where's the breakdown in responsibility? What do I tell my mom when she picks me up? From work. It was that early. But when you have a job or you've been fired, that would be fun. We won't do it. But wouldn't it be fun if we just... Raise your hand if you've been fired before. Uh, don't raise your hand. Or maybe you've been someone who has had to fire someone else. And this has nothing to do with situations where beyond one's control or their performance, uh, they're laid off or a job moves. There's all those types of things. This is not what I'm talking about. We're talking about responsibility, taking responsibility. Can you steward the possessions of someone else who places those goods or services or, or accounts, whatever, in your care? responsibility is part of this if you've been fired or have fired someone thinking of the idea of the job uh, Luke 16 and a parable uh, known as the parable of the unrighteous steward uh, you might be able to relate to quite well this is a hard to understand parable in that if you look at a lot of different commentaries you'll find a lot of different ways people think Jesus is applying this parable or what he's saying what usually helps us most is when the, the plain things in the text are the main things that are being taught. That will, that will save us here and we'll be careful too. And I think it's easy enough to see what the, the plain thing is, which is the main thing of this. But let me read some of it to you. There was, this is verse 1 of Luke 16, a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So this is, this is a man with, with a deficit of responsibility. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. That's probably the only proper thing can be said about this guy in the whole paragraph uh, that he's ashamed to beg Um, verse 4 I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management people may receive me into their houses so he won't be completely out on his ear verse 5 so summoning his master's debtors one by one he said to the first how much do you owe my master? he said a hundred measures of oil he said to him take your bills sit down quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So notice what this guy's doing. The title of the, the parable in most of your study Bibles will say something like dishonest steward or unrighteous steward. This is a bad man doing bad things. But Jesus is using this as an illustration. And what's interesting is the way in which he shrewdly or cleverly situates himself on his last day of work. The the last day he's still got keys to the file cabinet. He sits down with people he has relationships with who owe his boss money. And he says, how much do you owe? Oh, a hundred. Okay, write 50. That's a 50% discount. Then another, what do you owe? A hundred. Write 80. Maybe he thought he was in a better situation. She only gave him a 20% discount. Don't know the significance between the two, but what he's doing is he's making sure he's still got ties with these folks. Maybe he thinks he'll work for the competitor and then he'll have his Rolodex and they like him because he gave them a good deal. Who knows? But what's for sure is that when the boss finds this out, there's really not much he can do about it unless he wants to kiss that account goodbye. Because the customer doesn't really care if the manager was ruthless and was fired. He said, I I mean, so you've kind of, as the owner, eat what has been done. And maybe sitting across his desk one day, he sees what happens when he goes over the accounting and says, He got me. And maybe the appreciation he has for it is because maybe he's gotten somebody like that before too. Sometimes people look at business like a game of chess. Well, these are the things, these are not what Jesus is commending. Look what he says in verse 8. Jesus isn't commending this man. He says the master, the owner, the man who was taken advantage of. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's what's impressive to this man. His ability to... Preserve him his own interests. For the sons of this world, Jesus continues, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's saying there are lost folks who are more clever in business practices, albeit wrong business practices, than the sons of light. Verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails... They may receive you into eternal dwellings. Then he goes on a little further in verse 10 One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, that's money, who will entrust you with true riches? So money's not true riches as far as Jesus. And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you? that which is your own. So what is he saying? What what does this mean? What's the purpose of this illustration in the form of a parable? Well, basically the whole chapter, 16, it talks later about Lazarus who had many nice things in this life. Um, Well, the opposite of that. Um, But basically what Jesus is saying in a chapter given over to wealth and responsibility Part of the time Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, part of the time he's talking to his disciples, you have to read and he's directing it to different audiences. We know this because the Pharisees get really angry with what Jesus just said to the disciples and they uh, ridicule him over it. But what he's saying is this, the sons of this world, and he includes the Pharisees in on that, were more astute in carrying out their enterprises than the sons of light were in carrying out theirs. What is the business of the sons of light? God's business. And what Jesus is saying, he's pretty close to that family business. It'll be his blood that will purchase the power of canceled sin that we sang about. If there's a race or if there's a measurement or some type of of an evaluation for... uh, Knock the doors down. Let's get this done. He's saying that the lost world, serving themselves, is running circles around God's children serving their Father. Those things are, are, are plain about this passage. Uh, so put it in another way, another sentence, as if to say, I wish you'd work for me the way they work for themselves. Does that make sense? There's, there's something vastly different in the motivator in those two things. One is self-interest. The other is stewardship. Here's the difference. One is based on ownership. What can I get out of this? The other is based on stewardship. What can I do for the one who saved me? This is a glaring example of the difference between ownership and stewardship. Um, I've, I've thought whether or not to share this story with you. I might get in trouble uh, if, in doing so. But it's trouble no further than you know, my home uh, in Virginia. But I learned just last night about a story having to do with my, my brother. And see, I missed this. Last night I'm studying for this message. Everybody else is in Danville, but me, my family, my brother, his wife, and uh, they're having a good time, and they're coughing up stuff that happened when we were younger, which is some of the best stuff to learn, and you're amazed that you could have missed this, but we were all homeschooled, but uh, toward our graduation, uh, my brother took some classes at a At a a school, a Christian school down the road in Roxborough. We lived in Leesburg, North Carolina at that point, about 20 minutes from Danville, where we go to church. And my brother had this idea that he would cut some of his classes and get a job at Winn Dixie. I wasn't old enough yet, so he falsified his application and actually was hired. And the classes he wasn't attending, he worked. As I understand it, he was actually promoted. (laughs) Mom didn't know. I didn't know. Nobody knew. Until they mailed his first paycheck home. (laughs) Mom found out all about it. The idea, I think, could go something like this. Son, I wish you'd work as hard at school that I'm paying for than you do from Winn-Dixie that's paying you. One's a stewardship, one's ownership. Now, that's not the worst story. That's not the best story. There's stories of me, there's stories of Kelly, there's stories of Joseph. We all learned through this. But you've got to admit, that was a good one. (laughs) That's shrewdness in business, is it not? Which one is it? How do we view this place? Is this an ownership or is this a stewardship? Do we see our things that we call our own? The things that, that have our name on it, as far as the title or the paperwork? Anyone with a background in accounting could probably testify to what is a marked difference at times between the books of a nonprofit organization and a for profit organization. Because people inevitably handle their own money a lot different than other people's money. And in a church setting, it's mostly other people's money. This is a nonprofit. What difference does that make? Well, I'm asking questions that I'm not expecting answers to. This is to help us think. These ideas have implications, not only on an individual level, because we all will each give an account. For ourselves only in the judgment but then corporately as a gathered church what responsibilities do we have as stewards of the Lord's goodness right here at Wake Chapel God has been good to us we have a lot more than many other churches other churches have more than us I'm glad that that's the Lord's business and not our own but that does not alleviate our responsibility in any shape form or fashion All the good things we have and enjoy about this place represents the goodness of His generosity. They also involve a stewardship which involves responsibility. So here's just a a list of questions. Do we have a responsibility to take care of these buildings? Do we have a responsibility to faithfully manage the ongoing financial operations of Wake Chapel the day-to-day? Keeping the lights on, as it were. Does the way we manage what we've been given affect our ability to be used of God going forward? Of course it does. I know of many churches that could not expand or broaden their mission's footprint by taking on or supporting other interests if they wanted to by the sheer weight of debt obligations. That's not the case here not like there is other churches but these things all have their effect on the business for which Christ died right this is a stewardship we're not in the business of growing a club for ourselves to have fun and amuse each other with our stories and uh, maybe a little nice word from the Lord today to help us with a better shot at next week this is life or death these are God's words As they're preached, you either grow softer and submit to Him, or you grow harder and push Him away. But they all reverberate in eternity. That's what this is, a stewardship, not only of goods, bricks and mortar, but of the oracles of God, as they were described. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It then makes sense, with all those things being true, that we've got to take care of what we've got. And we need to pay what we owe. The sooner we pay off our debts, the more free we are to take on other interests as God so leads, right? He did not say, just for personal reasons, you are a slave to your lender. I learned that long ago. Borrowing money from my sister. Slave to the lender. I'll be free when I can pay this off. Every birthday card, you know, you owe me money. Should we steward it like we own it? As if it were our own. Aren't those the best managers, the best employees? Someone says, you know, they, they, they treat the business like it's theirs. Even though it's, their, it's not. Well, that, har- that help is hard to come by. Even in churches. Well, that's the responsibility. Let's look at the other word, accountability. And where responsibility is what we do now and over time, that's largely handled in the present. Our accountability sometimes is delayed until the end of everything, where all accounts are settled. Let me read to you this other passage of Scripture. This is from Ecclesiastes, and this has all to do with our our accounting for the stewardship of what God has given us. The preacher, known as Solomon, says in verse 1 of chapter 12, and this is the last chapter of the book, he says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Now, don't be misled here. This isn't apocalyptic ruin he's talking about. He's actually giving a, a, a description of the natural process of aging. Let's, let's hear him out. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, those are likely the arms and hands holding something, putting a tea pitcher back in the fridge is a little more shaky than it was before. The strong men are bent. That's reference to the legs. The grinders cease because they are few. Those are teeth. And those who look through the windows are dimmed, that's likely the eyes. And the doors on the street are shut, that's likely the ears. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, that just means that they can't hear during the day and they can't sleep at night. Verse 5, they are afraid of what is high, terrors are in the way. There's more and more excuses not to get out. The almond tree blossoms. That means the hair is white. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. Uh, Grasshoppers are about as vigorous of insects as you can find. That's why they're fun to catch. You chase them and they, they jump very high. But this says drags itself. Because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets... Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Those are all beautiful, poetic ways to say what we refer to as kicking the bucket. The end of this life here on this earth. And dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Vanity means meaningless. It doesn't mean anything, is what he's saying. But if you hear him out, start reading at the beginning. Solomon is, is writing this way on purpose. You stop right here, it sounds like a horribly morbid story. No, he's working on something. As if the wisest man in all the world wanted to paint a picture of what the world would look like minus the one key that makes sense of it all. That's what he began with. But let me read to you the rest of it here, and then I'll I'll give you three points of what he said and why it matters to this message. Besides being wise, the preacher, that's Solomon, also taught the people knowledge. This is verse 9. Weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. Boy, we're glad for the book of Proverbs. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly, honestly, he wrote words of truth. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. What does that mean? Goads are the things that would keep the oxen moving forward. It's kind of like uh, nails or goads, pricks to keep you off uh, the apron, the, the, the gutter, the curb, to keep you in your lane as God created for you to be. But look what he says in verse 12. This is where he finishes the whole thing. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of flesh. Oh, I can relate to that. This is the end of the matter. Verse 13. All has been heard. I've, 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 I've said my piece. It's all off my chest. Bottom line. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. And with every secret thing. Whether good or evil. And that's the end of the book. What does it mean? Well, he gives us at least three certainties and one admonition. He began with the admonition and then gave us a because. Do this because these three things are true. The three things are life is brief. The older I get, the more I'm acquainted with that. And the more I say things like that, at 40, people that are older than me smile because they don't know what I'm talking about yet. Number two, death is certain. We've said goodbye to loved ones in our family here recently, as have many of you. Number three, judgment is real. Your answer for everything you said, did, spent, thought will give an account for all of it. There's your accountability. So with those things in place, remember your Creator. And do it quicker or sooner than later. While you're young, before time is all up, before you're in fixed income, shut in, all these things that we we say with with endearment. But considering this, this is is truth. There's nowhere else to go with these things. Fearing God and keeping His commandments are the whole duty of man, says this preacher. Now here's where I want to tie this back to the last... Passage. And if this makes sense to you, keep it, think it over, and live by it. If you go back to Luke 16, verse 10, it says, The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Would you say that that's true across the board? Pretty much. Verse 11, If you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, that's money, that's a small thing. Who will entrust you with the true riches? That's a big thing. Now, if Solomon is saying, this is the whole duty of man, fear the Lord and obey His commandments, is that a big thing or a small thing? That's not just a big thing, that's the biggest thing, as far as our life is concerned. Are you faithful there? Then you'll be faithful here. If you find somebody who's not faithful in their church to disciple, to serve with their gifts, to be there in attendance, to encourage one another, to give financially, support missionaries, those are little things. And if the little things aren't there, there's not much indication that his heart is right with his creator, that he fears him and obeys his commandments. But if you've got someone who's As close to the family that they respect, that's what fear means, and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust. What John said, if you, Jesus, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How else does a a child show a parent that they love them better than being obedient? If those things are in place, they are a trusted steward. They don't just get a little, they get it all. If they're faithful in the big things, they'll be faithful in the small things. Now, we like to look at it backwards, the way we work. You're faithful with something, you get promoted. If you do a good job there, you get promoted. And you get pay raises each time you climb the ladder. No, when we trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, we got the whole ball of wax for absolutely nothing. Absolute free grace. It's all yours. But you will be accountable to what you do with it in the end. You'll be faithful with the big things. You'll be faithful with the small things. Something going on down the road. One day, and with this I'm done, people are going to gather around and they're going to say, Well, Isaac's dead. They'll put me in a box. And they we'll throw dirt on top of that. And then they'll probably go maybe in a room like this one down here and eat potato salad and barbecue and whatever else. I heard it put that way by a pastor who was being counseled on worrying too much about things that didn't matter. Said, Worry about the big things. Faithfulness in the big things. Because you're only here for a short time. And then we're going to have to hand this off to somebody else. I'm already thinking about the transition when it's my turn. Who, 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 get, who gets to do this to teach you the truth? Can people still come into this and expect to hear God's Word explained so they can understand it and know how to obey it? Can, can my children grow up here and continue to be fed? And their children and their children's friends... And their loved ones. This is a stewardship. That's what this is about. And that's just where we start. That's Jerusalem. What about Judea? What about Samaria? What about the other most parts of the world? Can we export these things? Can the gospel of God go out from here? And trust God to bring people in. To keep the whole thing perpetuated. That's stewardship ownership is you know what i don't like y'all anyway i'll donate it all to the charity you hate when i'm dead (laughs) ownership is over when you're gone stewardship continues just as paul taught faithful men what he knew so that they could give that to others got a lot of responsibility here and a lot of accountability when it's over But we've been given everything we need in order to do it. The rule book's right here. It's just, how do we look at it? A stewardship? Or ownership? Or maybe we steward like we own it. As part of the family. With that said, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this. Another chance to look at your word and learn. You've been so faithful to us to give us what we need to know and understand. You're also gracious enough to, to tell us explicitly how to obey. We're emphasizing missions this month, Lord, which sounds strange. We should emphasize it all the time. But take what we've studied and, and place it in our minds where we can access it. Live by it. Be generous because of it. And Lord, may we outpace the self-directed enterprise of this city around us by absolutely making you proud at the rate at which we are diligently about the business for which you died. Lord, send us where you want us to go and help us to sound and look and act like you, the hands and feet of Christ by telling others what you've done for us through the truth of your word. We thank you. We ask this in your
1: name. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come today with praise and thanksgiving. For your never-ending love, for your forgiveness, and the knowledge of of your grace, knowing that it is sufficient for each of us. Father, we give thanks for the men and women who dedicate their lives to serve you in the mission fields, both locally and abroad. And we ask for good health for each one of them and their families and that the resources shall be provided for, to meet their needs. And most of all, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will reach those in need of your love and your salvation. Father, we lift up uh, our church family who are on our sick list, who have physical needs, and and those who have lost loved ones in the past days, Lord. Uh, you know these needs, you, these physical needs, and uh, give these people that have lost uh, loved ones strength and, and faith in these last days. Lord, we want to lift up our leaders of our country uh, we pray for spiritual wisdom for them. Uh, we're living in a, a time of, of immorality and godlessness, and we, we're right is wrong and wrong is right, and uh, we just pray for your divine intervention, Lord. Uh, we know that only way that it can be changed is one heart at a time. That's why these missionaries are so important. That's why we, as your disciples, are important uh, to live our lives as a testimony of you in everything that we say and do, Lord. Father, we lift up our mission of the week, Transport for Christ. We thank you for uh, Steve Johnson, who serves as chaplain of this truck ministry, and we just uh, pray for his ministry, that it will expand, that our truckers will come to know you as their Lord and Savior. We thank you for the work that Steve does, and we, we're very proud to have him as a member of this church. And Lord, as we leave your house this day, we're reminded of an old hymn that friends of Jesus, in their parting, only part to meet again. Until we meet again, Lord, whether it be here at Wake Chapel or at Heaven's Gates, we pray that you'll watch over us and help us to walk closer to thee. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.